drugs. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Volatility returns and markets tremble over troubles at Portugal's largest publicly traded bank. Portugal's main index tumbles 4%. Global markets are mostly in the red, about 1%. In Beijing, U.S. and mainland officials put a positive spin on their talks. China agrees to intervene less in currency markets. And also the IPO for the big pork supplier, the WH Group, is back on the front burner. And coming up, comments like this. I don't think that this is probably going to be an issue that strikes, that, that really drives contagion and, a, and, a, and a, what we, sort of a 2011 style risk off. Michael Purvis at Whedon and Company, so you can tell he's not too concerned about Banco Espirito Santo. We'll get to coverage of that in just a moment. And also this. Indonesia's president, Susilo Bangbang Yudhoyono, has urged both candidates to refrain from provocation because the election result is unclear, but Joko Widodo has appeared for almost two hours on a live broadcast titled President of Our Choice. In our featured segments, we'll be looking at the latest from the Indonesian elections with Joel Kim from BlackRock. Sean Darby at Jeffries will be along for his take on the markets. Lucas Silipo from Natixis will be here to talk about Japan. And we'll also ask him about the impact of Banco Espirito Santo on overall sentiment. And later, Food Panda's Chinme Malavia will be here to talk about the recent launch of their delivery service in Hong Kong. Asian markets are moving to the downside this morning. We see in Japan the Nikkei down three quarters of one percent. That's 109 points lower at 15,106. In Australia, the index is down about a tenth of a percent. In Seoul, the Kospi is off three quarters of a percent. Gold had a fairly nice jump overnight, up about $12, but it's giving back a couple of dollars here in Asia. So it was up in New York, but down here in Asia, down 250 at $1,336.70. And oil was uh, rather inactive, uh, I should say. Uh, Brent crude has been at $108.50 or so for the past couple of days, coming down from $115 about 10 days ago. Currencies, the dollar at 101.29 yen, the euro $1.36. Well, stock markets in Europe and the United States fell sharply overnight. Investors worried about the banking sector in Europe and data suggesting weakness in some other European economies besides Portugal. Most European markets were down about 1%. In the United States, though, stocks came back from session lows, perhaps on thinking that this is not a game breaker. The markets are not telling you it is, and I, I doubt it will be. I think it's going to really be confined to sort of p- Portuguese and perhaps you know Spanish and other peripheral country banking sector. Sure. It will weigh on, on some long-term issues on growth there. But in terms of U.S. equities and the volatility we're seeing, I'm expecting that to be short-lived. So that's Michael Purvis again at Whedon and Company. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 70 points at 16,915, but it had fallen 180 points in early trading. The S&P 500 down 8 points at 1964. Espirito Santo International said this week it had missed payments on some of its debt. Its stock was suspended yesterday. The firm is the parent of the bank Banco Espirito Santo, Portugal's second largest lender. It also had its shares suspended. 
and those stocks were down pretty sharply. Mr. Purvis says that options activity indicates that this is more or less a short-term concern only. All this movement was felt on the short end of the, of the VIX futures curve. So VIX futures four or five months out were, were rising at a much lower level uh, than, the, than the short-dated stuff was, let alone spot this morning. So um, what's what does that mean? Well, uh, what, I, what, I think it, what, what I think the options markets are, are telling you is that basically this is short-term volatility. And what's interesting is that this behavior is just what we saw back when uh, Russia and, and Putin and the Ukraine were all coming to the fore. The short, the spot and short-term fixed futures were increasing. The longer-dated futures were kind of just shrugging it off mm-hmm. there, suggesting again that this is not something that's going to derail the broader equity market rally. The VIX was up over 13. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note fell just one basis point to 2.54%. Our first guest is Sean Darby, Global Head of Equity Strategy at Jefferies. Sean, good morning. Good morning. So it seems that investors did have some doubts about the uh, central bank assurances in Portugal that this is contained. Um, but then when we saw the comeback on Wall Street, it seemed that uh, some people were getting ready to move past it. W- what's your view? I think that's a fair statement. Uh, to be very frank, um, we've been waiting for some event to start to rekindle people's um, uh, worries about some of the overall indebtedness in Europe because credit spreads have narrowed so sharply there that uh, it was almost uh, you know, per- almost perfectly priced. So I'm not surprised that we've seen some wobble in Europe and uh, whether it was this uh, um, Portuguese bank or another event, I think it was uh, really uh, sort of on the horizon that uh, people would once again uh, uh, go back and rejudge just where we were on the um, overall indebtedness in Europe. Do you need a story of of some magnitude to start a correction, or is it sometimes just a little spark that gets it going? I think um, what would concern investors, particularly maybe with something like Portugal's uh, um, banking system solvency, is if the ECB didn't do anything. I mean, these markets, both in the U.S. and in developed markets, have been principally driven by this uh, sort of enormous moral hazard that uh, the central banks have put into financial markets that they're backstopping the system. And if there wasn't that type of action coming from a central bank during a period, uh, as what we're seeing over the last 24, 48 hours, then I think you could um, probably see a much uh, more violent correction. So do you think the financial system is vulnerable or it's okay? No, I I do think that uh, the central bank's desire is to ensure that there is enormous liquidity placed in the short end, not only just for, uh, for overall commercial banks, but indeed for risk-taking. That's why they've, they've engaged in these um, sort of unorthodox policies. So it's not in their interest to see these type of events appear. And I think it is more of a localized problem. Okay, so even if investors uh, who are facing losses on these notes, even if they uh, make a claim against the bank, uh, it won't probably lead to contagion. That's your view. That's right. And I think, um, to be very frank, uh, remember that uh, Europe is going through its own stress test of its banking system at the moment. And that is the desire for that is to ensure that these events don't occur or repeat or are repeated uh, later on. So they're going to doing something similar to what the Fed did nearly uh, four years ago. Okay, in a few minutes, I'll talk to you about the China trade numbers. Uh, we can have a little bit of a discussion about Hong Kong versus China, how valuations look. But in a recent report that you put out, you said that Americans might be fighting the tape a little bit longer. What, what does that mean? 
um, irrespective of what had been happening in Europe over the last few days, for the last few weeks has been an enormous build-up of short interest uh, positions, that's short, shorting shares of the S&P and, and the wider market. But equally, there have been ongoing inflows of money by mutual funds and retail investors, as well as also um, a, um, a, a repeat of some uh, margin financing or margin buying of stocks. So you've had this battle going on uh, over the last three to four months, and the result of that has been that the S&P has actually performed quite well. So this fighting of the tape, I think, is going to go on a little bit longer. People perhaps have been um, perhaps waiting for an event to short the market because of the USS equity overvaluation, but, um, uh, but they've not realized there's still a lot of money that's still coming into U.S. equities. And what about the bond market? Um, there's a lot of money rushing into the bond market as well with yields on the 10-year down around 2.5%. Uh, does that continue? Do yields continue to go lower? Well, I also find that um, positioning sort of very difficult to uh, understand. We've seen some pretty robust um, inflation and uh, uh, producer price uh, um, numbers coming over the last uh, couple of weeks. We've also seen some indications that uh, some, some of the wage data has actually been a lot better than expected. But it's probably fair to say that it could possibly be that both bonds and equities may actually turn out to be overvalued and that one of the asset classes may need to, to substantially correct. And you have to bear in mind, I think last year, I think it was in June, that uh, all asset classes for a month did very badly and we had a wobble around then. And that they, we could have a sort of similar picture building up over the next, uh, over the next couple of months. Yeah, the New York Times ran a story, I think, on Monday saying, uh, you know, everything was in a bubble, that um, almost all asset classes were, were up. You highlighted a little bit of that. Um, how much distortion is there because of, of what the Fed has been doing and also because of what um, companies have been doing in terms of raising dividends and buying back their own debt? Does that distort the valuations uh, and, you know, or is it kind of understandable given the, um, the backdrop? Well, in some ways... Um the companies, they're only responding to this monetary policy regime, mainly because uh, they themselves um, have turned out to have the biggest balance sheets or the best balance sheets coming out of the GFC. And they're the ones that are most vulnerable uh, or sort of most um, uh, c correlated to the central bank options because they're, they're, they're running so much cash. So their positions are very much um, whether they do the share buybacks or M&A or indeed what the Fed wants them to do is spend money. And there's some indications of that picking up. But in the meantime, they've also been engaged in this financial engineering. I think the bottom line really is, is that um, for the central banks, the, the day that uh, wages start to grow faster than inflation will be the very day when they can take the unorthodox policy away from the financial markets. And I, we wrote a piece recently just showing that you know, we had a similar position back in the late 1940s, early 1950s of a, of a financial repression. And reading through the text of the Federal Reserve then, all of the uh, members were continuing to point out that they just did not want a depression. Everything else but a depression was what on their mind. So, you know, whether there was a financial bubble or whether there was distortions in the other parts of the um, economy was nothing compared to the worries that they would have of refacing a, a deflationary shock or a depression. And that's the prevailing view. Uh, let me ask you this, um, because you've got almost full employment in Hong Kong, 
and you've got employment levels in the states that are far off of what um, uh, would be considered full employment. Yet you still have people unhappy, people um, not comfortable with the whole financial system, and particularly people unhappy about the gap between rich and poor. If jobs come back in the United States, does that in any way go away, or will it still be there like it is here? That's a good question. So whether whether the QE has um, exacerbated the income disparity, what's called the Gini coefficient, I think it's a little bit hard to tell because the policy, the, the trends in those uh, income disparity were already well in place before QE started. I think the difficulty is that um, the skill sets that are needed or bid up in the global economy now are actually relatively small. So you, they do require a certain degree of um, education and provided that you know, in, um, people have those skills, that, that there's actually quite a lot strong demand. The temporary employment agencies in the U.S. are doing very well, but it's left a whole swathe of uh, of people who are sort of disenfranchised and find it very difficult to see wage growth. And that unfortunate community has actually been growing. And I think it's more just due to the fact that we're in a cycle where, you know, a lot more is done through um, IT and information processing than it has been done in the past through other parts of the economy. Okay, for some practical questions, uh, particularly about strategy, just here in the past uh, three days or so, we've seen some pretty torrid selling of of IT companies, uh, especially the internet, uh, social media, some of the biotech. They've taken a little bit of a of a, a slide, um, almost reminding everybody of what happened back in March, April. Uh, are we going to relive that or or go see that movie? again? I think it's quite possible. I mean, again, very similar to the question you just mentioned to me, but one of the ironies about this cycle is that there just hasn't been enough growth and scarcity of growth has meant that people have bid up any company which is seeing uh, good growth, and that's been very much in the IT and the biotech. <laughs> the problem is is that you know, no one really has a feel for when that becomes overvalued just by the very nature of the, the problems elsewhere. So I think we go through these sort of um, sell-offs in these particular very, you know, narrow part of the market quite often, and ultimately, um, you know, as I said, the, the, those stocks will underperform when the broader recovery starts to happen and people are, are more enthusiastic about owning other parts of the um, uh, equity market. So what's your best idea at the moment? Well, I think um, certainly what I've been pointing out to equity investors is that um, if we're all right and that uh, in October the link-up uh, between Hong Kong and Shanghai occurs, uh, there are a group of uh, China Asia stocks which have actually um, been raising dividends. They have been running net cash on their balance sheet. Uh, they've got positive cash flow. All the attributes that have actually been shown to sh um, been shown to do very well in developed markets, and yet these stocks have actually languished in China, mainly because I think again the the investment community perhaps has not recognised how important a feature of that has been. So we've been sort of recommending people actually that you know there's a lot of undervalued A shares there. They're not necessarily part of the AH share and the AB premiums, but there's, if people do a little bit of you know. Um, homework and look look 
through some of the balance sheets, actually one would feel reasonably comfortable that these companies could withstand uh, some of the some of the you know sort of sort of worst parts of the cycle, particularly Which... in the auto auto <clears throat> particularly in the auto industry. Companies like Shanghai Auto, Great Wall, Midyear in the consumer electronics, Gree Electrical. They're not household names, but I, I mean when we did our own work on them, we were sort of reasonably satisfied that working capital was good, good dividends, and again, cash on the balance sheet. And that's been a big drive, as you pointed out, about shares, companies in the West doing buybacks and so forth. Yeah. Okay, finally then, the trade numbers yesterday out of China, they were better than the previous month, but disappointing, uh, short of uh, estimates. Uh, what did you make of those export no- and import numbers? It's a very good point. So about, I think about a month ago, um, I, I'm not sure if it was the World Bank or one of the other um, uh, supernatural gov- governments pointed out that world trade had once again started to uh, disappoint. And my fear actually for this year has been that there has been, a, you know, like ourselves, a big bet that global trade would pick up as the global economies resynchronized. And the numbers coming out of China have shown that that's still perhaps a little bit further off and that maybe uh, companies are desisting from building infantries and people are still living hand-to-mouth. And that's really what those numbers would be showing. That Again, there's not enough confidence from the global business community to raise investment production. And that's, uh, that was actually quite disappointing. Okay. All right. Thank you, Sean. Sean Darby, Global Head of Equity Strategy at Jefferies. Well, the U.S. and China wrapped up their talks by highlighting pledges on the renminbi. They also cited some progress on a bilateral investment pact. China's central bank governor, Zhou Xiaoquan, said that the PBOC will reduce its intervention in the currency market. Speaking on the sidelines of the annual high-level talks between China and the U.S., Mr. Zhou said the central bank would significantly reduce its intervention when conditions are ready. That wasn't specified, though. Well, the man most likely to be Indonesia's next president has appeared on national television despite warnings to show restraint. Radio Australia's Greg Jennett reports from Jakarta. Indonesia's president, Susilo Bangbang Yudhoyono, has urged both candidates to refrain from provocation because the election result is unclear. But Joko Widodo has appeared for almost two hours on a live broadcast titled President of Our Choice. Prabowo's brother and campaign spokesman Hashim says Jokowi is being reckless. We strongly feel that the democratic process is in serious danger of being hijacked by the other side. The Prabowo camp claims it's almost four million votes ahead with 60% counted. Its figures are unofficial and contradicted by other counts. Well, joining us now for some discussion of markets in Indonesia and investments is Joel Kim, head of Asia Pacific Fixed Income at BlackRock. Mr. Kim, good morning. Good morning to you. So a win by Joko Widodo has been sort of seen as better for markets uh, among many strategists. Uh, Why is that? market perception is is that uh, uh, the Joko win is 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 a more investor friendly outcome. Um, I have to say that there's uh, several things uh, around the electoral agenda uh, that are quite similar between the two candidates. But at the margin, uh, particular uh, elements around reform uh, from the Joko camp uh, would be seen as, as quite positive. Uh, uh, one uh, that you could single out is on, on the reform agenda would, for example, be. Um, how uh, he would deal with um, something like the fuel price subsidies. Uh, so just to put that in context, so we know 
that Indonesia is a twin deficit economy, current account deficit, budget deficit. And uh, in the broader EM sell-off, it was quite obvious that makes a country like Indonesia quite vulnerable. And so put that in, uh, to put that in context, uh, about 20% of, of the, the tax revenues get spent on, on these subsidies, uh, while uh, that money probably should have been spent on other things, like, for example, CapEx infrastructure. Yeah, infrastructure. So, so, it, so it, I, it's agenda is to deal with, uh, with that over the next four years and, uh, and improve that. So that's one of the things that investors would be looking at. We, we did uh, see some selling of late as the gap was narrowed between the two. But now yeah. uh, in the past couple of days, uh, looks like, uh, you know, we've kind of back um, up off to the races. Uh, so does is it that the positive scenario is now already priced in? Well, a fair bit is priced in, but not everything. Uh, so as you know, the, the margin between the two candidates is uh, small enough uh, that it could be contested. Uh, so we know that the official outcome is going to be around 21, 22nd of July. Uh, so if that result is contested, uh, then you're going to get another month uh, where uh, you will get a, eventually a constitutional court ruling on, on the 22nd of August uh, after investigations to, to determine who has actually won. And uh, so what is quite critical right now is that the margin between the two candidates is going to be big enough uh, that there's not enough ground for the opposition to like really contest the outcome. Yeah, the Jakarta Post had run an editorial kind of putting this down to uh, an existential vote um, and kind of simplifying it. Um, would that be um, go the strongman route versus the reformer route? Uh, well, like I said, I mean, some of it is a bit posturing. At the end of the day, uh, are the differences going to, going to be that significant? Uh, say, even in a win uh, from Prabowo, you would initially probably see a negative, uh, uh, you know, market reaction. But ultimately, uh, the differences may not be as large as uh, what part of the market expects. Other than the twin deficits, uh, how do the overall economic metrics look for Indonesia? Yeah, if, if you look very big picture, then the, the macro numbers don't look that poor. Uh, so in, in case of, uh, of of a win of, of Jokowi, uh, you would get some like, sort of recovery growth, uh, growth around the 5% handle and deficits around like 2 2.5%, 2 3% uh, for both budget deficit and uh, current, current account. For BlackRock, um, you're running a lot of funds. Um, how would you be playing Indonesia at the moment? Yeah, well, as, as you mentioned, I mean, you, you can look at a, a number of things. Uh, currency, we've seen weakness prior to the election. So it was not only the elections and, and uh, uh, you know, the risk of, of uh, a market unfriendly outcome. And you have to take into account that there were some seasonal uh, aspects to that as well. Uh, a lot of spending before the Ramadan. Uh, another uh, aspect is, is the mineral or export ban, which neither uh, of the two candidates is going to uh, tackle, so we're going to leave it. Uh, so that has temporarily impacted uh, the current account as well, and as a result, uh, you know, a, a, a weakening of the, of the currency. So we've seen a, a bit of a rebound in the, the currency. You could see a little bit more, uh, but that will probably happen a little bit more gradual, uh, gradual than now. Uh, in things like the bond market, uh, yields have come back down. Uh, if you get confirmation of the win, you probably can see yields go down another 10, maybe 20 base points. But after that, it's really going to be about the details, and this is probably something that will have to work itself uh, out over months rather than weeks. It's going to be about 
the coalition uh, is uh, opposition parties like the Golkar Golkar switch their sides and join Jokowi, uh, uh, and that's called the dematerialize. Jokowi only controls uh, 37% of the parliament right now. So how effective will he be? That's going to be critical. The formation of the cabinet. Are you going to get enough uh, technocrats on critical positions that he can really drive through his reform agenda? Okay. Uh, if if there if one of the reforms is is a cut in subsidies, uh, yeah. um, you know that may have an effect on people at the poorer end. Uh, but in terms of investors looking at Indonesia, would it be a no brainer then to um, go for some of the builders that might be involved in in an infrastructure uh, play? Yeah, that seems quite likely, right? Because this is exactly uh, the whole issue. Uh, more money, yeah, so three percent uh, that goes to fuel subsidies right now. There will be some adjustment, uh, some compensation for the poorer part of the population, but the much more efficient way to do that would be to work, for example, with cash transfers, something else. Uh, but the bigger overarching idea is the money that gets spent on something inefficient like fuel subsidies is that that money should end up in uh, infrastructure, capex, uh, exactly the, the areas where the government is not spending enough money on. Okay, Joel, um, we don't have a very good line, uh, so I think I'll have to cut it there, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but it's been a pleasure talking to you, and hopefully our listeners learned a little bit about uh, how perhaps to play the uh, election result in Indonesia. Thank you. That's Joel you. Kim, head of Asia-Pacific Fixed Income Research at BlackRock, joining us here on the line. Well, a couple of other notes, uh, quite interesting. HSBC has cut its economic growth forecast on Hong Kong from 3.7% to 2.9% for this year. The new estimate, which is below the market consensus of 3.3%, showed that the bank is more pessimistic about the local economy than its peers. HSBC said sluggish trade, weak retail sales, and a slowdown in tourism are all weighing on the economy. The bank has maintained its growth forecast for the mainland economy, at 7.4%. <clears throat> Pardon me. Very good morning to you. It is 28 minutes after 8 o'clock. Another story, uh, mainland pork producer WH Group is reviving its listing plan in Hong Kong. This is three months after scrapping the original plan. The company is now hoping to raise 2.3 billion U.S. dollars. That's sharply down from the original 5.3 billion that was originally uh, posted. The listing is expected to take place now in early August. The company took on a 4 billion U.S. dollar loan to buy the giant uh, American pork producer Smithfield Foods in a landmark deal last year. Let's take a look at the European markets. Uh, it was a down day, as we mentioned, down around 1% or so, some a little bit more than that. The DAX, for instance, down 1.5%. The DAX off 149 at 96.59. The CAC moved down 58 points, a drop of 1.3%. And in uh, London, the FTSE 100 was off a little bit less than that, about two-thirds of 1%. The news is coming up next here on Radio 3. So the weather today, mainly cloudy with some scattered showers and a few thunderstorms. Boy, did it rain hard this morning, but it's nice out now. Sunshine expected as well, 32 as the maximum. And outlook for the next couple of days. Yeah, sunshine expected the next couple of days. The news is next. Here's Samantha Butler. 
The government says its consultation report on political reform will be made public on Tuesday. It'll summarise the views received during a five-month public consultation but won't contain any concrete proposals, nor will it mention the unofficial referendum on political reform held by Occupy Central or the July the 1st pro-democracy march. The government says those events could be mentioned in the chief executive's report to the National People's Congress Standing Committee, which will also be made public on Tuesday. Speaking to RTHK this morning, the chairwoman of the Democratic Party, Emily Lau, said those events must be reported to Beijing. You cannot technically say, oh, we just have a five-month consultation period, which ended on the 3rd of May. So whatever happened after the 3rd of May uh, will not be included. I said that would be ludicrous. But even more importantly, the administration should really tell Beijing and tell the whole world the people's wish here very clearly expressed is that they would like to have a genuine democratically elected chief executive in 2017 and any method for using political screening to exclude candidates would not be desirable. An American-born child who was thought to have been the first to be cured of HIV as a baby has had the virus detected in her blood once again. The girl's case had raised hopes of a cure for the quarter of a million infants born with the AIDS virus each year. The BBC's Steve Jackson reports. The girl was born in Mississippi to a mother with HIV and was given aggressive treatment in the first two days of her life. At 18 months, she stopped being given medication to suppress the virus, but remained free of HIV for more than two years afterwards. This was unprecedented and led medical experts to hope that the technique could be used much more widely to cure babies born with HIV. Doctors treating the girl said the re-emergence of the virus was a disappointing turn of events, but the treatment may still have limited the development of HIV and the need for antiretroviral drugs. The UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has appealed for a ceasefire between Israel and Palestinian militants in Gaza. Addressing an emergency meeting of the Security Council, he warned of the risk of an all-out war in the Middle East. Gaza and the region as a whole cannot afford another full-blown war, and another fault line. The potential negative spillover elsewhere in the West Bank is also unpredictable in an already tenuous and combustible situation. The current crisis underscores yet again that the status quo is unsustainable. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Very good morning to you. You're listening to Money for Nothing in our new one-hour format for the summer as Backchat takes a break. Backchat will come back the first week of September. Guests coming up in the next 15, 20 minutes or so, Luca Silipo, the chief economist at Natixis Asia Pacific. And we'll also be speaking with Chinmay Malavia, managing director of Food Panda in Hong Kong and Singapore, and look at that delivery service. But first, some news. The government will unveil the results of its public consultation on political reform next Tuesday. Tuesday. The Chief Secretary, Kerry Lam, will brief lawmakers that afternoon in a two-hour special meeting of the House Committee. The Chief Executive, C.Y. Lung, will also make public his own report on political reform to the National People's Congress Standing Committee. The Secretary for Constitutional Affairs, Raymond Tam, said that the task force's report won't include any concrete reform proposals. He said the government would launch a second round of public consultation by the end of the year. R. Mike Weeks asked the chairwoman 
chairwoman of the Democratic Party, Emily Lau, what she expects from the reports on Tuesday. Of this administration, I never expect too much, but I think they should uh, re- report uh, very uh, honestly the views that they found in the uh, consultation period and also, of course, in the civil referendum and the big march on July 1st. It's quite clear that there is a very large body of opinion who are very concerned about uh, the possibility of using the nominating committee uh, to screen out politically undesirable candidates. So uh, I hope the administration, while they set out all the views that they've collected, will also have the courage uh, to to state that it is very important that Beijing must allow Hong Kong to have a genuinely uh, democratic election whereby the voters will have genuine choice. There is going to be a second public consultation again before the end of the year. I presume that'll be on the final plan for electing the chief executive by universal suffrage. How do you see the process rolling out ahead of that now? Well, there will be this second round, I guess. But if... um well, the, the, the secretary yesterday said the Hong Kong government's report will not exclude any proposal, which I think is, is only fair, and it shouldn't exclude anything. And, but if the National People's Congress Standing Committee, uh, which will meet in late August uh, to uh, vet the report, and if that Standing Committee comes out and make very grave decisions or even reinterpret the basic law, whereby they will exclude civil nomination, exclude nomination by political parties, and if they stress that uh, only the nominating committee uh, acting as a whole, voting together and with a very high threshold, like what the DAB and the Federation of Trade Unions have proposed, that is half of those members who vote uh, approve, then the person can become candidates. If these are decisions going to be made by the standing committee of the MPC, <laughs> I don't think we need to wait for another round of uh, uh, consultation because universal suffrage is out of the window. Then, of course, we will resort to civil disobedience. The chair of the Democratic Party, Emily Lau, speaking on Hong Kong Today earlier this morning. The chief secretary has been quoted as saying that the upcoming uh, reform process will inevitably have an impact on government workers. Kerry Lam is said to have made the comment during a meeting with some civil service and disciplinary staff unions yesterday. They were discussing a number of issues ranging from political reform to manpower shortages. But did she give any further details? Chan Sai Quing from the Hong Kong Senior Government Officers Association was there. She didn't really go into any detail, but uh, she sort of uh, informed the civil service unions about the the uh, publications of the consultation report. And uh, also we broadly exchanged ideas about the role of civil servants in face of the uh, all this social conflict. Mainly, of course, the civil, uh, disciplinary staff uh, colleagues, they, they bear the blunt of the, the uh, sort of... Uh, public confrontation, but of course it affects all the civil service as a whole, and uh, we all look forward to the stability of Hong Kong as civil servants. And uh, also we stress our role as civil servants. We try to pay, actually we, we, it's written down in the service, uh, civil service code that we have to maintain uh, political neutrality, which means really we really need to be loyal to the uh, Hong Kong government and of course to the Hong Kong people in the broadest sense.
Chan Sai Kwing uh, speaking also earlier on Hong Kong today. Some other stories we'll get to a little bit later in this half hour. The British government is expressing serious concerns about press freedom and self-censorship in Hong Kong. And People Power says it has decided to cut short its filibuster in LegCo. That to allow the passage of legislation to double the stamp duty on property transactions. Well, Godzilla-like QE by the Bank of Japan, cheap valuations in stocks up there and structural reforms. That's the subject of a discussion with our next guest, Luca Silipu, chief economist at Natixis Asia Pacific. Luca, good morning. Good morning to you. Yeah, thanks for joining us uh, on the program. Uh, how does Japan look uh, to you at the moment, the equity market in particular? Uh, I mean, Japan and equity market are two different things. Uh, the uh, Japanese economy is uh, hit by uh, some of the uh, quite uh, quite few uh, problems that a policy uh, like Abenomics could uh, could uh, could drag the economy into. Uh, the equity market, on the other way, uh, is uh, is supported and will continue to be supported by policies put in place to try to exasperate uh, Abenomics. Uh, which might mean that in the short term to the medium term, you still are seeing uh, at an equity market that is going to be relatively well behaved with probably uh, very little volatility, but uh, drifting higher. Uh, but in the, uh, I mean, beyond that, so beyond 12 to 18 months, uh, eventually there is going to be a price to pay in terms of the uh, effectiveness of the policies that are implemented at the government level. How long does it take to get the structural reforms? That's a question you should ask to Mr. Abe himself. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I tried to get him on the program, but I got you instead. <laughs> well, <laughs> nothing is perfect. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, this, the, I think the, the, the most innovative uh, element of uh, Mr. Abe's uh, policies was this kind of uh, swiftness and, uh, and, 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 and really strong decision uh, behind the, the whole Abenomics. Abenomics was structured. Abenomics, in fact, is a very easy and very, very common kind of policy mix, but it was uh, communicated very well. It uh, was communicated by simple sentences with simple uh, statements and simple uh, instruments. Uh, so it was very easy to understand, and it successfully uh, uh, waken up uh, Japanese uh, entrepreneurial forces. Uh, and uh, uh, triggered a very short-term uh, flare-up of the uh, of the Japanese economy. Uh, so the, the swiftness and the quickness of the implementation of reform was key in provoking this uh, first uh, positive effect on the uh, on the economy. Then came the problem with the third arrow, uh, which uh, proved to be probably harder to uh, implement or to or to plan. Uh, and the third arrow got uh, like a one-year delay, and all this uh, impression of swiftness and uh, uh, strong decision-making uh, leading the country all together to a single objective vanished. Because now, these are things like getting more women in the workforce and allowing more immigration. You're really kind of hitting at the status quo. But, you know, everybody can say this. Everybody knows what what could be the solution for 
for Japan and what could be this uh, third arrow, which is basically uh, the arrow that would allow productivity to be increased, especially in the service sector. Uh, so everybody knows that uh, you need more women in the workforce. Everybody knows you need to allow more immigration. But, you know, compared to the first two arrows, uh, a complete third arrow would have encompassed uh, a number of practical measures and not just indication as like, it has been done. Like what, paying people higher wages? Maybe. That's, that's exactly one of the points because you're getting money or getting purchasing power out of people through the, uh, frankly, unexplainable VAT increase. Uh, and then you give, you give nothing in return because the profit, profitability, uh, the corporate profitability that you produce with your action uh, is not translated into wages. So basically it's a flat uh, loss of uh, purchasing power in a, comp- in a country whose problem has been low consumption. So there are a lot of uh, issues uh, that are not very are not very positive, and probably uh, and probably explain uh, this kind of uh, panic mode that uh, the Japanese policymakers are now on to try to make it work, while uh, uh, the effect on the economy are already sputtering out. You sound a little skeptical of uh, the third <laughs> the third arrow, as though it may have been launched, but uh, it's not going to land anywhere. You know, there are uh, more than 250 proposals in this third arrow. Uh, they, uh, they, of course, need to be vetted by the different committees. Uh, most of them will never see the light. Uh, uh, and, uh, I mean, as of now, if I look at the third arrow, I see it as an excuse uh, to uh, promote uh, something that, in my opinion, Japan didn't need, uh, such as the corporate tax cut. Uh, so the, the real, the only really practical measure in this third arrow as of today is the corporate tax, uh, uh, corporate tax, tax uh, cut by 20%. Okay. All right. I think it's enough on Japan. Uh, if, you were sh- <laughs> if you were shooting arrows in Hong Kong, what, what yeah. sort of, what, what would the arrows be? I don't know. Uh, there, there are so many imbalances in this economy that it's difficult to, to start with. But, you know, eventually it worked up until... Now, let's hope that it continues to work. One thing that needs to be corrected is, uh, you know, I mean, there is this pro-democracy movement uh, in Hong Kong, but uh, nothing is said about the absence, total absence of monetary policy independence. Uh, uh, We are in a system in Hong Kong in which monetary policy is dictated uh, uh, by the United States because uh, with the currency board that we have... Uh, with the Hong Kong dollar, between the Hong Kong dollar and the U.S. dollar, we cannot have in Hong Kong a different monetary policy than in the U.S. And of course, obviously, the differences between the U.S. economy and the Hong Kong economy are uh, greater and greater. Uh, and so it is, uh, it is increasingly uh, difficult to have the same monetary policy in Hong Kong than in, than in the U.S. So this is something that definitely I would I would uh, I would quickly think of changing, or maybe yeah. they are already changing, uh, thinking about it. But of course, we don't know about it. The second thing, okay. probably. Yeah, go ahead quickly. Sure. Yeah, the second thing probably is on consumption, on kind of regulating regulating consumption. There is probably too much supply, uh, too much uh, retail uh, points, uh, and probably a more organized consumption would eventually be benefiting Hong Kong in the long term. I mean, where are you? It's not like you're in a market or something. Are you out buying vegetables this morning or something? 
I am not. I am the NPR. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> well, that's not my nightmare, is talking to somebody on a mobile phone on the MTR. Goodness gracious. Well, then, let me just kind of cut it short with one final question. Uh, do you think that the PEG, um, the fixed exchange rate, in a sense, could be at the root of a lot of these problems? Uh, people feel, you know pretty badly at the lower end uh, and inflation has kind of set them back a bit uh, and that it's maybe even more that the expensive uh, flats and all these high costs and everything that it's more that than it is um, the lack of of, uh, of universal suffrage uh, absolutely I mean it's, it's part of the problem it's part of the issue it's part of the same issue if Hong Kong wants to be independent on, 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 on many aspects of its political life, it also should be independent in policy making, which is uh, definitely not the case with a fiscal policy that is uh, neutral or, I mean, not very, uh, not very active, I would say, with respect to what it could do, uh, because we're continuing to save money at the Hong Kong budget, uh, save money for the future for we don't know what. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and monetary policy is, of course, not existent. So, you know, when you want independence, a psychological factor or a sociological factor uh, would uh, would uh, would suggest you to have independence on several on several layers and on the economic layers, on the monetary policy layers. It's exactly right what you said. I mean, the the the, the fact that we have a monetary policy that is probably too expansionary uh, gives rise to a lot of problems, such as the uh, real estate. Uh, issue, uh, consumption issue, and, and so forth. So okay. it's at the it's at the core of uh, of uh, the issues that okay. Hong Kong has. To I think we need face. a better a better line for a heavy discussion. But uh, Luca, thank you very much for joining us here. Thanks for calling in, Luca Silipo, chief economist at Natixis. The time is now twelve minutes before nine o'clock. Yeah, the Glee version there of Friday. Just something to break up that heavy discussion and something a little bit more fun. Now we're joined by Chinmay Malavia, Managing Director of Food Panda, Hong Kong and Singapore. Chinmay, thank you very much for waiting so patiently. You're probably mad as a hornet now, but um, we still have some time, a good 10 minutes or so, to talk about uh, this interesting work that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about Food Panda and what you're doing for people. Sure, sure, Brian. Good morning. First of all, no problem. Anyways, happy to be here. So Food Panda is, uh, as you said, is fun. <laughs> but what we basically do is we are an online food delivery marketplace that offers uh, customers a choice. 
uh, of different uh, restaurants for them to order delivery. Basically, it's a very simple concept. What we do is, as I highlighted earlier, is the convenience. So we empower uh, customers via an app, a mobile application, or the website for them to look at different options, different choices, look at reviews, look at ratings, and then basically, um, you know, at a busy day at office or being stuck in the traffic jam, uh, just conveniently order food. Uh, so is it a bit more of a tech-savvy service than, say, some of the other delivery-type services? For definitely, food? definitely. That, that's, the, that's the opportunity that we saw in Hong Kong uh, specifically. So it's a very fast-paced you know, society. People are busy, but there's no real good product in the market. There's okay, a lot the of fir- food ordering. First, before yeah. you go on the, the phone, if you could put, put it in your pocket or on the floor, that would be good. So go ahead then. Sure. So basically, it's the, yeah, the the opportunity in the market was that there's a lot of food ordering that's already happening. That's very good. But a lot of it is only happening on the phone. So you have to call in, you have to get, give your address and give your name and repeat your order. And if you want the same thing the next day, then you need to really do the same thing. It takes 10 minutes and then you miss out something, etc., etc. So what we do is we give you a good, nice app. You look at it. Be it wherever you are, just, you know, with three clicks, you get your food delivered. So it's a convenience, basically. So is this purely a commercial uh, push or are you also doing something about um, food conservation or, or food for the needy? I mean, in, in the end of the day, you know, it's, it's basically it's the market. Like, you know, we, are, we, are, we, are, we call ourselves still a startup, even though we are in, let's say, 40, 50 different countries uh, globally. So we iterate, we pivot in what, what the market needs. So for now, I think uh, there's the huge demand, let's say, of organic food, or there's a huge demand of vegetarian food. That's something that we're looking at. Also, the opportunity in Hong Kong is that there's language barrier has a huge role to play. So let's say if you are, if you are an expat, if you want to go to your nearby Chinese restaurant, you might not be able to order anything for yourself because you're just not able to speak to the guy at the other side of the of the you know the counter. So what we do is we give you a bilingual app, and uh, you know and and let you try some different choices. So how many restaurants uh, or food providers have you signed up as part of the service? So for now we are working with around 150 restaurants. Wow. And and we are scaling. We are you know we're looking at different areas. We're looking at different choices. We're looking at reviews. And uh, we are giving what the people want, basically. Yeah, because the interesting thing about this type of service uh, in all different industries is is the the reviews and the rating, the service uh, rating. So um, you kind of rate the customer, and the customer rates you. Uh, how how long, you know, or how much further is that out before you have that? So it's, it's uh, you know it takes time, yeah. But but at the same time, you know, we we don't want to. Uh, you know, we don't uh, we don't want to you know take over like say ten thousand restaurants and put it on the customer's face. We want to be selective. We want to be there's definitely a due diligence uh, that is done before we onboard a restaurant, let's say, and then we, we you know and, and then there's a selective process. Then we get the customer review, etc. But it takes time to build up the base to build how, up to be the market based concept. How challenged are you by the high cost culture here? That, that's actually one of the other, you know, scenarios which uh, makes more, even more sense for food panel because if you look at restaurants, they have a high fixed cost. They're paying a very high rent and uh, they have a, you know, the manpower is, doesn't come cheap as well. They, you know, the aircon, etc. is running. What we do is basically give them a, a source of incremental revenue. Imagine, you know, I'm your best customer. I'm going to eat your food 20, 30, 40 times a day, but I'm not going to even sit at your restaurant. I'm just going to come, take it away, mm-hmm. basically. 
Okay, so how do you actually make money? Uh, presumably, uh, there isn't a markup, uh, too much of a markup on the on the price in the restaurant, right? So how do you get paid? So definitely, there is no markup. So we the prices are exactly the same as basically just going to the restaurant. Right. So we avoid the queue and get it, uh, you know, at your office or at your home. How we make money is very simple. We are, we get a certain percentage uh, from the restaurant on the order value. Okay, and uh, how many, uh, or do you have like a commitment on uh, sort of like Domino's Pizza will be there within 20 minutes or 30 minutes or anything like that? So uh, it, it, we, you know, we work with restaurants and what is the, you know, so, so-called the best delivery timing. So we give a, when you go to the app or the website, you get one estimated timing. And then when your order is confirmed within five minutes, you get an accurate time. Yeah, so we, uh, so basically the guarantee comes in. Uh, uh, you know where we, we, you know, it depends on restaurant to restaurant. Some restaurants, if the food is easy, can be delivered fast. It might be thirty minutes. Sometimes goes to forty-five minutes as well. You mentioned you're scaling up. Uh, walk me through that a little bit. Uh, what sort of expansion mode are you in? So primarily now we are uh, you know very much focused on the Hong Kong island, but we see there's a huge demand on TST. There's a huge demand on the Gold Coast New Territory. There's even a bigger demand in uh, Discovery Bay. So it's just uh, we, we are very targeted. We don't want to go everywhere and be haywire. You want to be very focused and then scale step by step. And, and where are you strongest globally? You mentioned some, what, 50 different cities that you're in or more. Um, where are you the strongest? So uh, personally, I also manage Singapore and Singapore was uh, was the earliest country for Foodpana. It's one of the mature markets. And uh, basically, we have you know established the whole concept for the customers by being the convenient channel for the restaurants by giving them incremental revenue. So Singapore is one big market. Russia, we just acquired one of our biggest competitors. So it's also a huge market for us. At the same time, uh, uh, Poland and in, in, in Brazil, uh, so there's th- th- a bunch of markets that are there that are already you know developed or developing. And I think um, end of this year we will be, uh, you know, we will be even expanding further and going to 60 uh, countries. Where's home? Home. Uh, I was uh, born in New Delhi, but, but uh, know, what, what's the home market? Home market uh, is. Where'd you start? We started in Singapore. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, well, it's very, uh, very interesting. Uh, best of luck with it. Uh, we'll have you back in six months or so, and uh, if you're in town, we'll see how it, how it's going. Uh, enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Definitely. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Thank that's Chinmay Malavia, who's Managing Director of Food Panda for Hong Kong, and as he mentioned, Singapore as well. Market's a little bit lower now. The Nikkei down 65 points, but that's a little better than uh, the story we told earlier when the market first opened. In Australia, the ASX 200 down 13 points, a quarter of a percent. And in Seoul, market uh, there down about three quarters of one percent. Gold has uh, leveled off a little bit, still $1,337.30, and oil prices 108.60. Well, a story I highlighted a bit earlier, the British government has expressed serious concern about press freedom and self-censorship in Hong Kong. But it says in general, the one country, two systems principle continues to work well here. RTHK's Tom McAlinden reports. The latest biannual report presented by Foreign Secretary William Hague to the British Parliament is more explicit than London's recent summaries, reflecting rising tensions over democratic reform here. Mr Hague said the best way to preserve Hong Kong's strengths was through a transition to universal suffrage that meets the aspirations of its people. But he noted there was no perfect model for political reform. The report also says Britain's closely monitoring press freedom in Hong Kong amid concerns about self-censorship. It details a series 
series of recent incidents, including the stabbing in February of Kevin Lau, the former editor of Ming Pao newspaper. It also notes media reports that UK banks, HSBC and Standard Chartered, were among institutions that have pulled adverts from the pro-democracy Apple Daily newspaper in response to political pressure. But as for comments in London, both banks insisted any changes made in their advertising would be for commercial reasons. Earlier this week, HSBC caused a stir when it cut Hong Kong's investment rating, saying the Occupy Central campaign could sour relations with the mainland and hurt the city's economy. That wasn't mentioned in Mr Haig's report. People Power says it has decided to cut short its filibuster in Ledgeco. Altus Wong reports. Speaking on the second day of the final session of a full council meeting in the current legislative year, People Power lawmaker Albert Chan said his party would reduce the number of calls for headcounts. He and his colleague Ray Chan, as well as Leung Kwok Hong from the League of Social Democrats, have been filibustering the council's meetings in a protest against the CY Leung administration. Albert Chan said their action didn't mean to disrupt the legislative process of any item related to people's livelihood. We hope that uh, before the ending of the meeting, the major people livelihood issue and proposal will be approved. Uh, so that the stamp duty the ordinance, we hope that uh, we can finish it uh, before Tuesday evening. The pro-establishment camp had vehemently criticised the filibustering. The financial secretary, John Zhang, had also expressed worries over a delay in passing the legislation. Mr Zhang announced the doubling of stamp duty on properties costing more than $2 million in late 2012 in a bid to tame prices. But the leader of Liberal Party, James Tan, said the measure was unnecessary and that his party would not support the bill. Because that is not a case speculator. And it is not against foreign investor. It's just asking everyone who buys some property in Hong Kong to increase the stamp duty from four point some percent to eight point some percent, which means as far as the buyer is concerned, the prices did not go down. James Teen at the end of that report by Altis Wong. Well, that's the end of our show for you today. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, the weather, mainly cloudy with scattered showers and some thunderstorms, but sunny periods too, 32 as the maximum. And sunshine expected for the next couple of days, a few showers as well. Coming up next, Morning Brew here on Radio 3 with the news at 9 o'clock. It's time to win. Well, from the top or from the ground. Let's listen to the great sight, changing how you're throwing down.